0: Thank <sniffs> you. Well, welcome to church. How are you all doing this morning? It's nice to see you all. Let's do something just a little bit different. But first, let me welcome you to the First Universalist Unitarian Church of Wausau. My name's Brian Mason, and I work here. Um, This church has been here since 1870, and it served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin, and I want to extend a Welcome. To all of you present with us, those of you joining us online, and I thought because we haven't done this in a while, and it seems relatively safe, I thought I would invite you all to actually get up and say hi to one another. (laughs) Now, bear in mind, wait, wait, before you do it, some people might not want to shake your hand. They might not want to give you a hug or whatever, so be prepared to do the elbow bump thing, the bow or whatever, but get up and greet one another after a while. Now, if you would, please join me in Reciting the church's chalice lighting, you'll find the words printed in your order of service. And it begins. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Please rise as you're willing and able and join in singing our opening hymn, number 301, Touch the Earth, Reach the Sky. citing our affirmation, you'll find the words in your order of worship. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest for truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer, to dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. Nardoxology. wishing all you mothers and grandmothers a happy mother's day. And I thought I would take the section of the story for all ages to tell you the tale of the original mother's day. So it actually has unitarian roots. How many of you knew that? Two people. Well done, you unitarians. I'll tell you the story so that everybody can walk out of here knowing that Mother's Day is a unitarian well has Unitarian roots. I won't say it's a Unitarian holiday. So go back in time with me to the middle of the 19th century, and there's a, there's a woman by the name of Julia Ward Howe. And Julia Ward Howe was born to a prominent, what they call a Boston Brahmin family. And she was born and raised by a strict Calvinist, but anyways, by the time she rose into young adulthood, she went to the Unitarian Church that was pastored by William Ellery Channing, the great champion of Unitarian Christianity who preached that seminal sermon in Baltimore, Maryland, that really ushered in the new wave of Unitarianism that we've inherited to this day. So, Julia Ward Howe was a convert to Unitarianism. And then later in her life, as she grew up a little bit, she visited a school in Boston that's now called the Perkins School for the Blind, and there she met her future husband. She describes it in a journal that she says he rode in on a large black steed in a beautiful black cape, and she instantly fell madly in love with this guy. But anyways, she was also inspired by all of this work for women's rights, for equal rights, the eradication of slavery. And she had this vision to create a holiday known as Women's Peace Day in 1872. And she actually went to Europe to present this to a council. And so the original intent behind Mother's Day was for world peace. Isn't that an amazing thing? But is that what we celebrate on Mother's Day today? No, we celebrate pancakes, and and I love all those things, don't get me wrong. I love pancakes and all the things we do about Mother's Day. But I thought that I would tell you all the story of Mother's Day, and then I would also invite you all to share with me some of the original words of Julia Ward Howe's proclamation, which is actually in our hymn book. So we'll do a responsive reading so that we can really dive in and experience the original intent behind this holiday. So go ahead and open up your hymn books to 573. You read the italics. I'll begin. Arise, then, women of this day. Say firmly, we will not have great questions decided by irrelevant agencies. Our sons shall not be taken from us to unlearn all that we have been able to teach them of charity, mercy, and patience. From the bosom of the devastated earth, a voice goes up with our own, and it says, Disarm. Disarm. As men have often forsaken the plow and the anvil at the summons of war, let women now leave all that may be left of home for a great and earnest day of counsel. Let them then solemnly take counsel with each other as the means whereby the great human family can live in peace. In peace. In this time of war, I hope that this proclamation comes true. Please join me in singing our children's song. And ministry of UU Wausau is made possible entirely by the support of its friends and members. So I invite you to give as you're able and generously. I thank you in advance for your generosity, and a plate will not be passed, but you'll find a basket there in the back of the church if you want to drop something in. Also, you can stop online or text to give if you'd like to give that way. Thank you. I'd like to invite everyone to join me in the spirit of prayer and meditation. I think prayer requires your whole body, and so I invite you to put your feet flat and firm on the ground. If it is your custom to pray or meditate with your eyes closed, I invite you to close them. And let us start and become aware of our bodies in this space on the tips of our head. Become aware of the air, the heat. And as you move down, let your jaw relax, and your shoulders. And as you take a deep breath, breathe it into your stomach and out. And let us pray. Tenacious, loving wellspring of life, we give thanks for your call, your call that shows us how to listen to the still, small voice that guides us on the path to fuller faith. We give thanks for ministries that come to us in times of pain and stress. And in this time of war and strife, now as always, We need your spirit to well up within us, for there are many places where we face the depths of pain or illness, anger or isolation. We pray for our relationships and families and ministries and for our future as a church. We pray for those caught up in and fleeing nations at war, and we pray for peaceful resolutions. We pray for those who have recently lost a beloved to death, for those who care for the sick and injured. We pray love in the midst of sadness. I invite you now to call into mind all the joys and sorrows in our lives, and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please remain seated for our prayer hymn number 168, One More Step. reading this morning is the 23rd Psalm. It is familiar, but it's always new, at least to me. And the psalmist writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God maketh me to lie down in green pastures. God leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for God's namesake. Aaron ends our first reading. My sermon text this morning is a poem entitled, Don't Tell Anyone by Tony Hoagland. So my question before I read this poem that I want to uh, invite you to have in your mind is, why do you think the character in this poem is doing what she's doing? The poet writes, We had been married for six or seven years when my wife standing in the kitchen one afternoon told me that she screams underwater when she swims. That, in fact, she had been screaming for years in the blue chlorinated water of the community pool where she does laps every other day. Buttering her toast, not as if she had been concealing anything, not as if I should consider myself personally the cause of her screaming, nor as if we should perform an act of therapy right that minute on the kitchen table. Casually, she told me, and I could see her turn her square face up to take a gulp of oxygen, then down again into the cold, wet mask of the unconscious. For all I know, matey, everyone is screaming as they go through life, silently, politely keeping the big secret that it is not all fun to be ripped by the crooked beak of something called psychology, to be dipped down again and again into time. That the truest, most intimate pleasure you can sometimes find is the wet kiss of your own pain. There goes Kath at 1 p.m. to swim her 22 laps back and forth in the community pool. What discipline she has. 22 laps, like 22 pages, that will never be read by anyone. Therein ends our reading. I think I forgot to do the chalice lighting. I did. Let's do that. Join me. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Well, you all got to witness my one mistake that'll happen this whole day. How lucky. So one evening... Uh, Years ago, when I was in my mid-twenties, I had attended a Thanksgiving party back in my hometown. And I was enjoying a conversation with a woman I sort of knew from high school. Now we had many of the same friends and we were both student athletes, we both wrote for the school newspaper. But at some point in the conversation, I said to her, I said, how come we never hung out back when we were in school? And she acted almost sort of embarrassed by this question and tried for a while to avoid answering it. And finally, what she told me is she said, Brian, back when we were in high school, I really enjoyed chatting with you when our paths crossed. But she went on to tell me that in high school, I had a bit of a reputation that I was unaware of until that evening. So she recalled quite accurately that I was notorious for giving people a hard time. Now, I have always enjoyed giving people a hard time though I make it a bit of a point to spare my congregants, though some of you absolutely deserve it. So sometimes in those days, and more often than I like to admit, I went a bit too far by turning the people I was joking with into the joke. The problem was I thought, or at least I liked to think, that people were in on the joking, that they didn't mind it when I turned them into the butt of a joke. And I could see that the woman who was telling me this, that she was in a bit of pains telling me this bit of truth. But I had asked for it. So she went on saying how she and others at times would actually avoid me at social events because they were afraid they would come into my sights and that I would embarrass them like they had seen me do to lots of other people. So I asked my friends, I said, hey, do you, was this lady telling the truth, and they said, oh yeah, every word of what she said was absolutely (laughs) true. My friend said, you know, you can be funny at times, Brian, but you can be really ruthless too when you want to be. So I said, my friends are all liars. So I asked my, my parents and my sisters, and I said, I said, mom, Molly, Nina, is this, is this true about me? Do I sometimes, and they said, oh yeah, a thousand percent of the time. And then my mom reminded me, she said, remember those 10,000 warnings I gave you as you were growing up as a teenager? I said, Brian, you need to cool it. But we all know how well teenagers listen to their parents and their little sisters. And so what my friends would tell me is they said, Brian, don't worry about it. Lots of people were idiots when they were in school, which, which is true. But I couldn't stop thinking about this lady's words. And so since that, since that conversation, what I've often done is I wish that I could travel back in time so that I could tell my young self, Brian, you don't have to be so cruel. But I can't do that, can I? So I've learned to live with some regret. And so on the topic of regret, the Austrian psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankel, he advised his patients to, quote, live as if you were living already for the second time and as if you had acted the first time as wrongly as you are about to act now, End quote. And so what Frankl's getting at is in a perfect world, all of us would be able to imagine the impact of our words and actions before we speak and before we act. But many of us, and perhaps even most of us, we don't do that. We get caught up in the heat of an argument, and we let go a string of insults, or we throw someone's secret right back in their face, or sometimes even worse. We let lust lead us where our minds and our morals wouldn't dare go. And after after we're busted or someone tells us a tough truth, we regret not following advice like Frankel's from the outset. Or if you don't have any regrets, you just sort of self-righteously justify your behavior by blaming others for your poor decisions. And this latter reaction is no doubt an extension of our culture's well-documented obsession with no regrets mentality, as if that's even possible or desirable. So the American research professor Brené Brown says, quote, "...the idea of no regrets doesn't mean living with courage." What she says is it means living without reflection. She goes on to say that to live without regrets is to believe we have nothing to learn, no amends to make, and no opportunity to be braver with our lives, quote. And despite this truth that we all probably know on some intuitive level, if you Google the Library of Congress, what you'll find is that they produce a list of more than 50 books with no regrets in the title. And if you go to Google and you just type no regrets in, at least as of yesterday, you will get 228 million results. Musicians from Edith Piaf to Eminem, they've all recorded songs entitled, No Regrets. People, in fact, get no regrets tattooed, hopefully spelled right, but they get no regrets tattooed on their bodies. And tattoo shops From England to Panama, I I did this yesterday for sermon research. I I did Google Maps, no joke. From England to Panama and from Maine to California, tattoo shops often have no regrets in the name. I found this sort of ironic because I also decided to do a little research to see if people regret tattoos. Here's a fact. The Harris survey just released some data that shows that more than 75% of people regret getting their tattoo. For the record, I have nothing, nothing wrong with tattoos, so none of you tattoo people storm out of here, be like, this anti-tattoo church. I don't care. It's just data. Here's some more data. The American Regret Project, yes, that's a real thing, the American Regret Project asked 4,489 people this question. How often do you look back on your life and wish you had done things differently? I'll ask it again, how often do you look back on your life and wish you had done things differently? If your answer is no to that, please raise your hand. Not a hand went up. Okay, you matched the same data expression. What they found is roughly 1% of people, about 45 of the 4,489 people, said never. I never look back. So what that means is 99% of people have regrets. Now I'm sure all of us are familiar with the feeling of regret. There's lots of different kinds of regret. Here's some that I've had recently. You buy something that you thought would make you happy. You thought, bought something that you thought would make your life better, but it turns out the thing that you bought is just some overhyped gizmo, and you end up suffering buyer's remorse, which is just a really pleasant name for regret. Here's another one. You spend 15 minutes at Pick and Save trying to pick out the perfect toothpaste. Why are there so many options? Have you ever wondered why there are so many options? Anyways, like, why don't the one that gets rid of plaque also whiten? I don't understand why you can't. Anyways, so you spend 15 minutes trying to pick out the perfect toothpaste, and you end up buying one that tastes something like Penny's smell. Or you're in a hurry at the store, and so you grab some coffee, only to find out after you've already opened up the bag and poured it down into your coffee maker that it's decaf instead of regular. Or in a conversation that you're having about someone else that you don't think is there, you, at the end of that conversation, round a corner only to find out that the person you just talked a bunch of smack about is sitting in the hallway and heard everything you just said. So despite the presence of regret in our lives, its definition actually through time has proven somewhat hard to pin down. And so for centuries, if you look at the history books, what you find is that from scientists to theologians, to poets and doctors, they've all tried to define regret. And so one psychologist says it is, quote, the unpleasant feeling associated with some action or inaction a person has taken which has led to a state of affairs that he or she wishes different, end quote. Here's a philosopher. Now, be warned, this is a weird one, but a philosopher wrote, it is, quote, a feeling of unpleasure associated with a thought of the past together with the identification of an object and the announcement of an inclination to behave in a certain way in the future, end quote. But the writer Daniel Pink in his lovely new book, The Power of Regret, he has a different take. Here's what Pink says, regret is better understood less as a thing and more as a process. And so this process is a result of humankind's ability to visit the past and imagine a future up here in our minds. And we also have a chance to create narratives as we do this. In fact, regret is a sign of a healthy, maturing mind. That's what the data says. If you look at young children, what you'll discover is that young children almost never show any signs of regret, and in fact, they don't even understand the concept until they're about six years old. But research shows is that by the time kids turn eight years old, they not only experience regret, they have the ability to anticipate it. And so I've seen this in my 10-year-old daughter, and I asked her permission to share this all with you. So here's an example of this. My daughter, believe it or not, at 10 years old, isn't always excited about doing her homework. Shocker. But after dinner, this is what often happens. What she'll do is she'll get out her work and she'll say something like, Dad, I don't want to hear my teacher get annoyed with me, so I better do my math. In essence, my daughter's motivation stems from her imagining a future in which she has regret because she caused disappointment in her teacher and hypothetically got an earful for it. And so from a medical perspective, in fact, the absence of regret in adults is seen as a sign that something is very, very wrong happening in someone's brain. And those who claim to live proudly without regret often end up ratifying their own idiocy by taking undue self-satisfaction and their existence above anything and anyone else. The truth about regret is, it not only makes us human, it actually makes us better. So in his letter to the church in Rome, St. Paul tells this to the congregation there, quote, We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And Emily Dickinson said something very similar in a poem of hers in which she writes that they say that time assuages, but time never did assuage, and actual suffering strengthens as sinews do with age. What Paul and Dickinson demonstrate is our ability to look directly at the amazing spectacle of life, warts and all, and find in life's unavoidable trials opportunity to learn and grow. They understand that learning to regret well makes us humble in the face of our future self, our future self who is depending on us to make more better decisions than bad ones, that very same future self who depends on us to treat people nicely, to spend money wisely, and to brush our teeth nightly, so that when we're old, we have friends, we have a bit of money in the bank, and we have teeth to chew our supper. Learning to regret well teaches us to recognize life's felicities even during sadness and pain, such as wonderful children from a failed marriage, a community that holds us accountable after a lifetime of addiction, An insight from someone that causes us to see that some of our words and actions once caused pain. I think it's best to add a disclaimer that I think it's wise to acknowledge that too much regret can be a bad thing. Too much regret can lead to depression and anxiety. There is also the fear anticipated by regret that causes us to act impulsively, And this latter part is something that economists and business people have actually turned into monetization by turning our fears of regrets into big business. Just think about the insurance industry. I have nothing against insurance, but just think about the insurance industry. It generates trillions of dollars annually by anticipating our regrets. Here's an example. The last time I got my teeth cleaned... My dentist, you know, the dentist comes in at the end and pokes around and, you know, gives the ride off. You look good or you got to come back and get, you know, cavities filled or whatever. My dentist came in and in the same breath, he wheeled himself in and he said, Brian, your teeth look wonderful. Keep doing whatever it is you're doing. But I do think you'd benefit from fourteen dollars a piece caps on your deeply crevassed teeth. And I thought, well, I'm just going to live with deeply crevassed teeth for the rest of my life. I'm going to roll the dice. I'm not going to anticipate this regret by giving you $75 times 14. Again, nothing against dentists. Lots of disclaimers in the sermon this morning. But our focus isn't business models formed by fear of regret. It's regret that can be used as a guide, a catalyst for future behaviors informed by facing difficult emotions and mistakes directly learning from them, and doing our best to move on. One of the most significant facts about us may be that we all begin with the natural equipment to live a thousand kinds of life, but in the end, we end up living just one life. And so given that the average person in the 21st century makes more than 35,000 decisions a day, the chances of making a regrettable one are pretty high. According to the British psychotherapist Adam Phillips, we are as much a measure of the selves we aren't as the self we happen to face in the mirror. The choices we make, all those yeses and nos, they all add up to be the substance of our lives. So I'll close this morning with two stories of regret that I encountered this last week. The first one comes from a dear friend and a minister I admire. And here's the story he shared with me. He said, early in my ministry about 40 years ago, I counseled a woman who some 20 years before was unfaithful to her husband. And so for years, the regret haunted her. And I was the first and only person that she had told about it. And so after we talked about it and we prayed for a long time, I recommended that maybe she at least consider telling her husband after all these years. And this certainly wasn't easy for her, but she said, I'm going to try and tell him. But then she went on to say, she said, Pastor, I trust you enough to do what you asked. But if my marriage falls apart, I want you to know that I am going to blame you for it. (laughs) And he made sure to point out that she did not smile when she said this. So the next day, she came back to church, and he said, You look 15 years younger. What the heck happened? When I told him, he replied that he had known about this for 20 years. He was just waiting for me to tell him so he could tell me how much he loved me. And then she started to laugh. He forgave me 20 years ago, and here I've been needlessly carrying around all this guilt and all this regret ever since. She faced her guilt and her regret with truth, and in so doing, she found love and forgiveness on the other side. This next story comes from history. So one morning, way back in 1888, Alfred Nobel, he woke up to find his obituary mistakenly published on the front page of a French newspaper. And the headline read, Alfred Nobel, the merchant of death, is dead. So Nobel, if you don't remember, Nobel invented dynamite back in the 1860s, and he had built factories all over the world, and he had made millions and millions of dollars in the process. He read his obituary, and what he didn't find, and there was any mention of the fact that he was a brilliant chemist. He was a brilliant inventor, a brilliant businessman, fluent in no less than five languages. What his obituary said is it said Alfred Nobel's soul was rotted, rotted from leading a life of death and destruction by selling tools to people that they used to blow one another up. And so, eight years after reading this mistaken obituary, Alfred Nobel did finally die. And when his family and the attorney opened up his will, it contained a surprise. Instead of leaving his multi-million dollar fortune to his family, he established a set of prizes for, quote, those who during the preceding year shall have conferred the greatest benefit on mankind. And so according to legend and diaries, what caused Nobel to do this was the mistaken obituary that heralded him as humankind's merchant of death. And so the merchant of death, he surveyed his life and his regrets, And in so doing, he became a merchant of medicine and literature and peace. And so when I look back at the man I was when I was younger, my regrets, I regret not being kinder to people. I regret that it took me until I was 24 years old to finally go to college. I regret not apologizing to people before it was too late. I regret not talking to my grandparents, about their unique and complicated lives. But these regrets don't keep me up at night. They remind me of the man I want to be, of the father I need to be, the husband I can be, and the minister I was called to be. Regret gives us the ability to look backward in order to move forward better. It helps us figure out what's truly in our control and what's not. It lets us craft redemption stories in our minds that motivate us to live honestly and with humility and grace. Because regret, as St. Paul reminds us, it makes us human. But it also has the power to make us better and give us hope. Amen. I invite you to join me in singing our closing hymn number 100, Peace Like a River. Drice. here this morning with someone, I invite you to take their hand now. If you're here alone, please reach out with your heart. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that cast out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Please relax and enjoy the postlude and I'll see you soon.